Welcome to the Designing Hollywood podcast in association with the John Campia Show. I am your host, Robert Meyer Burnett. Today's episode is sponsored by Costumes Rental Corporation. Today's guest is an award-winning costume designer born in Newcastle-upon-Tyne and studied fashion design Northumbria University, where she obtained her degree. After graduating, she moved into television, primarily working for the BBC as an assistant costume designer, and I found out she worked on Doctor Who, eventually designing her own projects, most notably the BBC's prestigious Screen One and Screen Two series of one-off films. Some of the films she's known for are The Full Monty, Sliding Doors, Johnny English, three films for Woody Allen, Matchpoint, Scoop, and Cassandra's Dream, and My Week with Marilyn. And most recently, she finished Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part One. For the past three years, she's been working on the Mission Impossible franchise, and she is now currently working on Part Two. Without further ado, please welcome award-winning costume designer, Jill Taylor, to the Designing Hollywood Show. Hello, very nice to meet you. Are you Rob or Robert? Rob, call me Rob. Rob, okay, Bob, Rob. whatever you prefer. <laughs> now, okay, Rob. as we as we were talking, you 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 told me that you worked on Doctor Who. I mean, you came up in the BBC, and I got to start there because I'm a huge Doctor Who fan. Doctor Who is, of course, beloved. It goes all the way back to the early '60s in the UK. Did you grow up watching Doctor Who? And who is your favorite Doctor? I did grow up watching Doctor Who. I remember as a very, very, very little girl being absolutely terrified by the first Doctor, which I think was an actor called William Hartnell. Yes, it he was. He was the first Doctor. And I remember hiding behind the sofa when I was a tiny little girl about some <laughs> giant worms that were on TV. Um, I guess my Doctor, I was not really into Doctor Who. My little brother was more into it. I guess my my Doctor, I suppose, as a child, was Patrick Troughton. Of course. Merging into John Pertwee. Right. <laughs> I, was, I could have sort of just hit that when I was about 10, maybe 10, maybe not even 10, eight, something like that. Um, but yeah, they were, they were kind of my doctors when I watched it. And I remember it was always on on a Saturday afternoon at about five o'clock in the evening. Uh, it's, it's see, we got Doctor Who a little later. So Tom Baker was my first doctor ah right you know because yeah. yeah, yeah. it came later and we were why i got to see things like that like those shows from britain that i love like the prisoner with patrick McGowan and doctor yeah. who and the jerry anderson stuff was was i got that later in life which i felt deprived by he was but. you know he was he was my first crush scott tracy i didn't realize he was a puppet <laughs> i didn't realize the goddamn thing was a no 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 a super marionette um, he was a, a super, super marionette, marionette. A super marionette, and I didn't realize when I was about five, I think, that he was a puppet. Wow. And I always aspired to be Lady Penelope. I and, you know, I had all the toys. I don't yep. know what happened to them all. I remember getting a Lady Penelope doll and a Parker and the car and Scott. What's Scott? We had Thunderbird 2 with the pod that popped out. It's the greatest. That Dinky toys made those. They were die-cast metal toys that was that we, we had a we had a bit my brother had a big plastic one yeah it was big and you can still you can still get them you know i i yeah. uh i saw a guy once i was i was going to london and he had a t-shirt on and the t-shirt was parker and lady penelope and the it had a little 
thought bubbles or voice bubbles and lady penelope says why do you work for me parker and the aunt parker was saying because you're a cheeky bitch milady and i was like <laughs> my whole life i've been looking for that shirt and i'm like where who made that shirt but who made that shirt I, well, I, I often refer, you know, when, when we when we're doing fittings sometimes and whatever. I mean, many years ago, I did something called The Life and Death of Peter Sellers. And I would often refer to Charlize Theron as uh, it's Lady Penelope undercover at the ski lodge. Oh, <laughs> I, well, you know, if they ever I, I mean, they did make a live action. Jonathan Frakes directed a live action version of the Thunderbirds, but it kind of wasn't. I went for that movie. I went I got I went for that interview. Did you really? Yeah. He didn't give me the job, but I went for the interview. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, I mean, now you've got a better yeah. job. But, you know, it's kind of yeah. funny. I mean, I mean, I think that somebody should make the epic live action. That that movie was more directed at kids. The But if they made a Thunderbirds movie with a Mission Impossible James Bond bent, so it was made yeah, for right. with the technology and everything, I think it'd be great. Well, let I me ask... Beautiful uniforms oh the, well the clothes in all of the jerry anderson productions i mean Ru, rudy they were designed by sylvia yeah sylvia by- did and then like when when he went on and did live action and did space 1999 rudy gernreich Gern, he designed the moon costumes in space 1999 i mean they they those they had ufo with the, the the women with the purple hair that ran moon base and they had the oh, yeah, silver i love that yeah it's fantastic it. And, Martin and, Landau, Martin Landau and Barbara Bain, weren't they Space 19? That's right. Yes, they were. Yeah. And and where did they meet? On the original On Mission, Impossible. Mission Impossible TV they series. Did. They so, did. Yeah. Which I also loved as a kid. It was fantastic. I also loved as a kid, yeah. Still the best theme tune ever. Oh, the, and, and ever. they've the one of the great things about the Mission Impossible movies is how the theme song has been reinterpreted. I mean, you had the yeah. the you had Larry Mullen Jr. and the Edge doing a version yeah. of it, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, fantastic, and and yeah. and this one was it Lauren Lauren Balfe Lauren Balf Lauren Balf Lauren Balf. That was a, Funny, I mean, I was, the, I was sitting in the sound edit with with both Tom and McHugh, um, uh, and they were listening to the the, the different um, arrangements. For which one they were going to have? It's a great, it's a great theme tune. Uh, and I theme. and I love how they've retained uh, the fact that they show you clips from what you're about to see in the opening. Yeah. Is the and yeah. I figured, oh, they want, but they did it too, and they've they've managed to reinvent it each time. And I really enjoyed how they did it for Dead Reckoning Part One. But before yeah. we get to that, before we get to that, now that I've got your Doctor Who bonafides and. I want to take you back to okay. You're watching. You are obviously were a connoisseur back in the day. But how did you decide to get involved in costume design? Was it something that you always wanted to do? Did you go to school yeah, for it? Pretty much. How no, did it happen? I did. I used to. My grandmother, who was a huge Betty Davis, Joan Crawford fan, Barbara Stanwyck fan. And in England, on Saturday afternoons, they always had a Saturday afternoon matinee on TV. And my gra- and I used to spend a lot of time with my grandmother sometimes. You know, I did. I spent Saturdays sometimes with her. She looked after me. And she would sit me down and she would watch, we would watch a Betty Davis movie or a Joan Crawford movie, Barbara Stanwyck movie. And I just became a huge fan. So I think at the, about, I was about the age of 10 when I thought this would be a 
cool job. I'd like to do this. I always loved their clothes. I mean, now Voyager is still one of my favorite movies. And um, and so I thought this would be a cool job. I, this is what I'd like to do. And so in England, you know, you have something called careers officers. And they sat us down when we were 13 and said, what would you like to do? And I said, I want to go in the film business. I want to be a costume designer. Well, from where I come from in the world, Newcastle-upon-Tyne, it's an old mining town. I mean, that, you know, <laughs> you didn't go into the film business in this town. You just didn't. So they made me do shorthand and typing and all the things I really wanted to do at school, like art and history. I love history. All those things I wasn't allowed to do because the curriculum, because I said I was going in the film business, the curriculum they gave me was all to do with something to fall back on in life when I oh. fail. In the film business. Trying to turn you so, into a secretary. Yeah. Nothing nothing wrong with that, mother, by the way. Nothing wrong with that at all. And then my mother decided uh, that I was uh, clearly had a screw loose and <laughs> um, uh, thought it set me up for an interview with a bank. So I said, I, I'm not doing that. And so I was about 16 then. I wanted to go to art school. So I did uh, two years foundation uh, for the American listeners. I don't quite know how that equates to high school but it was a it was a two-year course from 16 to 18 you did all the you know um different different disciplines of art so i did that and then somebody said to me you can illustrate um fashion really well and i should explain that my parents divorced and i i, I got a stepmother who's still with us <laughs> oh that's and, good uh, she she um my dad and my stepmom had uh when they when they um TV regions in England all started opening up in the late 60s. My dad managed to wangle his way in as a wardrobe master. God knows how, but he did. <laughs> and with no qualifications, no nothing other than he liked clothes. But what he did do was get my stepmother in to that environment. And she had been a window dresser. And she had gone to art school in the 19, the early 1960s. And she, I inherited all her old drawings. So I used to sit and copy her drawings. Wow. Um, and so wow. by the time I got to uh, uh, foundation course when I was 16, 17, and I could draw, I could draw fashion. Um, one of the tutors said to me, uh, you should go and do a fashion course. I said, well, I, I wanted to work in the film business. He said, no, you should go and do a fashion course. And I thought, I, I don't know how to get into the film business. So I ended up doing a four year fashion course. Wow. Um, well, that was my degree. And then I uh, still didn't want to work in fashion, wasn't really interested in fashion. And then um, um, I think I'd done some stuff. I got, oh, I got a job in theater dressing. We have a, had a lovely actress in this country called Barbara Windsor in a pantomime. And so I, that was my first gig, dressing pantomime. And then I dressed all the spear carriers at the RSC, the Royal Shakespeare Company, yeah. who came up to Castle. And then uh, we saw an advert in one of the um, uh, the Guardian paper. The BBC were advertising for uh, holiday relief assistant costume designers. And what that meant was that everybody at the BBC was a staff member. It was probably a bit like your old studio system. Sure. Where you were there full time. And so people would go on annual leave, usually in the summer. And so to cover the quota of all the shows that the BBC were making, they needed to bring in people and that's that was me i got in as an assistant costume designer and i was there on and off for about eight years um, wow. it was a great trade 
fantastic training. And I assisted some amazing designers. Uh, you know, you were you were put from all sorts, you did all sorts of things. One day you could be sorting boots out in the basement, German boots out in the basement for a war drama. The next you could be dyeing satin shoes for a troupe of dancers. You know, it was a great grounding in costume. And uh, so, um, yeah, that's how I got started. And I was there for, yeah, eight to 10 years. And then slowly they, uh, I met they, you know, I was, I'd had a three month contract. I thought I was coming to London for three months from Newcastle. I'm still here 40, 40 years later, I'm still in London. Um, so uh, they, um, anyway, so eventually what happened, um, was something called Producers Choice came in and they wanted younger and younger designers. So the old school of designers was sort of getting, which is horrific really, pushed out and they wanted young blood, uh, the young producers that were coming in. So that's how I started. I got um, a gig with a director called Antonia Bird. Yeah, sure. Who did Face. Did Face, the movie with uh, Robert Carlyle, right. Uh, the first thing I did with her was a drama called Safe, and then I did something, uh, uh, a film, it did have theatrical release, a film called Priest. Yeah, sure. Which was about a homosexual Catholic priest. And and then we eventually went on to do Face. So that's how I got started. And then I would, st they moved me into the BBC at the time. Were doing very prestigious one-off films within the, the bounds of the BBC, and it was a Screen One and Screen Two, Screen Two series. And some really good films came out of that. And uh, and so I met lots of directors. They were like one-off films. That's how I got an agent because my CV just had one-off films on it. Uh, and then one of those uh, directors wanted to work with me again. And I got a, a, a cold call from a producer saying, my director wants to work with you. Can I send you a script? And I said, yeah, and by then I'd left the Beeb, the BBC. Um, <clears throat> I decided I wasn't going back, you know, and uh, uh, so the producer was Roberto Pasolini and the, the script was the full Monty. I, I mean, I was gonna say, cause you've worked on some, <laughs> some, some great stuff. I mean, when you read the script, I mean, The Full Monty is a movie about taking your costumes off. So, I know. So, I know. And, and everybody and, says that, but there were no clothes in that film. It yeah. bloody well worked. Yeah, it's probably yeah. the oldest joke in the world. I'm sure you've heard it a million times. But you were really off to the... Uh, what, what? What's interesting, you did Full Monty. You did a movie I, I really liked, too, called Sliding Doors. Uh, you did yeah. Face, Antonio Bird, like you teamed up. And then you did three uh, films with Woody Allen. I'm a huge... Woody Allen fan, such a such an influence in my own life, um, and Matchpoint is a fantastic movie. Yeah, that was the that was the first one. You know, that was a really good gig to get because at the time uh, it, it was very excited. Everybody was very excited in London that Woody Allen was coming to London. I don't know why he came to London, but you know, I think there were issues in New York, but we won't go into that. But anyway, he came to London and. Um, I, he didn't interview me. He has a fabulous producer called Helen Robin, who I met in a bar in um, a hotel. I'm trying to remember which. I think it was the London Hilton. I can't really remember on, I think. Anyway, we get we, we met and I was walked in with my portfolio and she asked me if I wanted a drink. So I said, yeah, we had a drink. We just sat and chatted for ages. And um, and I knew every costume designer was going for this interview. Every single costume designer in England was going for this interview. And I thought, well, I'll just go and I'll have a chat. I'm not, you know, I don't think I'll get it. You know, there's much bigger designers than me. And I got the gig. <laughs> and, and I remember the first time I met him, 
and I'd done loads of mood boards. He came in, um, when, once he arrived, he came in, I remember he came into the office and he was really shy. And, uh, and I really had an out of body experience because it was like, oh my God, I am looking at Woody Allen. And I, I'm a, a big Woody Allen f fan anyway. I loved all his movies. And the reality of him walking in to me and discussing my mood boards was just kind of, okay, you know, you better concentrate, Jill, because, you know, get over the shock that you're actually sitting here with Woody Allen. And we got on really, really well. I mean, he, I think, doesn't like costume. He doesn't really respond to costume. Right. He would rather uh, the actors just wear their own clothes. Um, he, he's, uh, he, yeah, he was, uh, but great. And I loved him. And we had a very easygoing, easy relationship. Um, I think he felt relaxed with me. His assistant told me he did. Um, so that was great. And, yeah, and I mean, obviously, he brought you back two other times. You know, you worked him multiple times, which speaks yeah, well did. to your not just your ability, but your ability to work with him. Well, that brings up the question. I mean, you've worked with a lot of like you work with Anton Fuqua on, on Infinite, and now you're working with with, uh, and we'll get to this later. But the relationship, I, I can't imagine the relationship between Chris McQuarrie and Tom Cruise is, I think, one of the great success stories of the last 15 years, certainly in Hollywood, in terms of collaborators being able to really, really create exactly what the public wants and create great entertainments. But before we get to that, what's it like when you develop a relationship with a, with a director? I mean, for you, when you're on a project, is it the script that attracts you? Um, is it what the script allows you to perhaps do? Or is it the the uh, the director and the actors. What what is it that attracts you to a project? Sometimes it's just I need a job. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Touche. Uh, yeah. Uh, no. Oh no. It's the script. It's the script. First of all, it's got to be something I'm interested in. You know, none of us, unless we're really, really, really lucky, none of us get. Uh, the pick of the peach jobs you know some people do right. there's a top one percent and you know we could all sit here and say oh, i wish i'd done that job i'd love to have done this i'd love to have more opportunities to do this 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 and this and but you know you've got to go with how 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 the whole thing falls in for you you know and yeah. so um yeah i guess it's the script i've turned lots of things down because it's been a repeat sometimes of what I've done already. Mm. Um, uh, but also, it's you get a feeling when you go and meet somebody if you're actually going to get on with them. Um, you know, there's got to be some kind of an ease about it. There's got to be, uh, for me, regardless of the director's <clears throat> reputation, I've just got to feel that I can have a relationship with him. And I, I pretty much know very, very quickly if that's going to be the case. Right. And if it's not, <laughs> and if it's not the case, I'll sometimes walk away. Now, you know, I like I said just a couple of minutes ago. You know, um, sometimes I just need the job, and beggars can't be choosers. Sometimes, you know. Right. So I, I, I wish I could say to you, oh yes, you know, I choose my jobs because of the script and the reputation of the director. That's not always the case, but. In an ideal world, yeah, the script, and then to see if you actually get on with the director and the producer. Right. Yeah, that's, yes, because they're the ones that are getting you paid. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
and they're the ones that might give you hell over the budget. So, so uh, you know, I think it's it, it's to me it's a really collaborative effort. I most directors I've worked with have invited my opinion. I've never worked with somebody who's such an auteur that I'm not allowed to contribute anything. I I'm trying to think. Have I ever been in that situation? I don't think so. Um, so. Uh, you know, it's a very collaborative effort, and uh, and so you have. To, I have to feel that I can speak easily to somebody. Sure. Well, does no, that make sense? No, that makes absolute sense. Now, to go even further, um, like it was funny because I, well, I told you I went and saw uh, Dead Reckoning again yesterday because I want to see it at Dolby Cinema, um, and, and there was a trailer for A Haunting in Venice, which is the new Kenneth Branagh. Hukiri Peru. I always miss, but I was thinking. Yeah. That, I was thinking that that's interesting because you 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 worked for Kenneth Branagh in Shadow Recruit, of uh, Jack Ryan Shadow yeah. Recruit, and I I was gonna yeah. ask. I was gonna ask. So, what is your relationship with actors like? Because I've often said to people that you cannot, when it comes to actors and you're producing movies, you cannot skimp on your, well, your catering, but you cannot skimp on your makeup. And your costume designer, because that's your first line of defense to allow an actor to get into that character. And costume design is so important when it comes to working with actors. What is it like to work with actors? And when you're working with a director like Kenneth Branagh, who is also one of the great actors on the British stage, what was that like? And was it different working with a director that's also a very accomplished actor? Okay, so Ken and I... um he interviewed me many, many years ago for something, and he was the first person ever when I went for an interview asked if I wanted a glass of wine before I sat down. <laughs> and, uh, oh, my man. And, uh, anyway, yeah, he didn't give me the job. Thanks, Ken. Anyway, years later, I'm doing my work with Marilyn, and he came in as Olivier. And uh, we, I think he appreciated, because I love research, I love research, and I really enjoyed the research. I'm a huge, huge fan. I've always was a huge fan of Marilyn. Um, so I had endless, hundreds of books. And um, so when I got to meet Ken, uh, I had all this research and he responds to that. And I'd done my homework. I knew all about, I, I love cinematic history. So I knew all about Larry and Vivian and, um, the making of the Prince of the Showgirl anyway. And and so I, um, he knew what I was talking about. And we had a really good working relationship on that movie because every night I would go in to see him, to tell him what we were doing the next day because he was really, it was a really complicated costuming for him because sometimes he was Larry. I, if anybody doesn't know, Larry Olivier directed the Prince <laughs> yeah. of the Showgirl. So, uh, but he also acted in it. So when we were making this, you know, sometimes Ken would be dressed as Larry, the actor in The Prince and the Showgirl. <laughs> sometimes he'd be dressed as Larry, the director on The Prince and the Showgirl. Sometimes he'd be dressed as Larry in his private life. And sometimes he'd be dressed as half and half, you know, half director, half actor. Um, and so it was a very complicated um, you know, we were jumping about a lot with different looks. So every night I made it my job to go in, see him, 
tell him what I th what we were doing the next day and did he agree with me and I'd had it all planned out what he would wear I mean there's lot there was lots and lots of photographic reference of Larry directing this movie and uh, so you know we we followed a lot of these looks we right. had some artistic license a lot of artistic license but you know I wanted to get it as right as possible because some of the people that worked on the show Prince and the Showgirl were still alive <laughs> and and um uh, so I had some fantastic pictures, which I got from the BFI, the British Film Institute, of Larry directing the movie, behind the scenes stills, great pictures of film crews, everything, it was great. Um, so he, he loved all of this. So, so he and I got on very well. And he asked me one day when I was helping him get dressed, because I always seem to end up dressing him as well. Um, he asked me one day what my budget was for this movie and I told him I was like seriously no money and he was really impressed by that that I'd managed to do everything I think I had for the whole movie a hundred thousand pounds which wow. is very very yeah very very small costume budget and uh, he asked me because he'd just done Thor and he said do you want to know what Alex Burns' costume budget was. I said, do you know, I don't think I do. Uh, anyway, he told me, and I said, oh, wow, okay, that's a huge difference. Uh, but anyway, he was he was impressed, I think, but that I'd managed to achieve what I'd achieved on such a small budget. And so um, a little while after that, I got a phone call from him uh, or his people saying, um, you know, they wanted me to look at a script that he was going to do. And uh, it was something called the Guernsey Literary Potato Peels and the Potato Peels Pie Society, which was a book, lovely, charming book, all set in the Second World War. Wow. We started the movie. We didn't finish the movie because we couldn't find a leading man. So we closed. It closed. And I thought, oh, well, that's the end of my, you know, dealings with Ken Branagh. And, uh, and then literally about four months later, I got a call again saying, could they send me a script? And I went to see him and I, I got this script and I didn't have, he wanted to see me the next day. And I said, look, I haven't had time to prepare anything, you know, and he was talking to me like, you know, costume, costume, costume. And I said, I haven't had time to prepare anything for you. He said, no, no, he said, you're doing the job. And that was Jack Ryan. Wow. Well, what's interesting about that is that's a Skydance produced film. I mean, through Paramount, you know, and, yeah. and obviously the Mission Possible franchise became a Skydance uh, production. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, that's uh, David Ellison's uh, production company. They've done Star Trek with Chris Pine. They've done Mission Impossible. They've basically been co-financing most of Paramount's major slate for the better part of almost 20 years now. So to get into that family is probably a good thing, you know, to be working. So Skydance becomes aware of you. You're part of that that team. Yeah. Which I mean, I don't nice. know if that had yeah. any 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 bearing on on moving forward with uh, Mission Impossible, but it's it's definitely a good place to be, I think. Yeah, um, it's fantastic. It's I'm very grateful. It's it's fantastic. I mean, uh, in, it, I mean, interestingly, um, uh, Lorenzo de Bonaventura had been the producer on Jack Ryan with Mace Newfeld, and um, and then moving forward a few years, Infinite with Antoine. Lorenzo was involved in that and I think uh, what happened with the Mission franchise um, they needed a costume designer quickly and um, Lorenzo had nominated me so hence I got a call you know um, 
I used to work at Warner Brothers 30 years ago. And I, I was working, I worked for the, uh, Bill Young, who was the senior vice president. He was in charge of physical production for the studio. And I was there when Lorenzo first started as an executive. And mm. he, he was always very nice to me. And like, I was always yeah. sneaking into research screenings and he would never, he would be there if there were Warner Brothers movies. And he's like, he'd just shake his head and laugh at me. And then I made the, the one and only movie I directed 25 years ago. He watched it and actually gave notes. So right. I, I, for me and from my perspective, he's one of the great, one of the nicest oh, guys. I love, I love, love Lorenzo. Yeah. I think he's fantastic. I yeah. remember going for a dinner. We went for a dinner. Um, I don't know why we were going for this dinner. Heads of department. I think it was after a studio show and tell. And I sat between Mace and Lorenzo. And the two of them together were just kind of bouncing off each other. But their lives, I mean, they'd led fantastic lives. And, and I just thought, sat there between the two of them going, wow, okay, I've done none of this. You know, they're just fantastic lives. They, and enjoyed themselves. Really well, themselves. I, no, I think he's great fun, Lorenzo. I was a huge, I'm a huge Mace Newfeld fan. You know, he's no longer with us, but no. I was, I was having lunch with a buddy of mine at this cafe called the Fabiola's Cafe that used to be right across the street from Paramount, right on, right there on Melrose. And there was like nobody in this place except this guy sitting in the corner and my friend Mark and I, and for whatever reason, I had just, I'd watched Clear and Present Danger, which is a, oh, obviously yeah. the third Jack Ryan movie. Mm-hmm. And I, I was I was quoting it because I, I love that movie. And I was just telling Mark, I'm like, I love this movie, you know, and I, and I, for whatever random reason, I was just talking about Clear and Present Danger. And it's not like it was new. You know, I'd watched it on probably I was watching on Laserdisc or something before DVD, yeah. the DVD come out. And this guy who's sitting in the corner comes over to our table and he's kind of like this gruff guy he goes, listen, my name is Mace Newfeld. And we're, we're like looking at him. I couldn't believe it. He's like, I, I just, I can't tell you what it means to me to hear people randomly talking about you. You don't know who I am, and I'm like, no, sir, I, I didn't. He's like, so you weren't trying to like put on a show? I'm like, I, I had no idea. I was just, I just watched the new DVD or whatever it was, and I'm a huge fan of your Jack Ryan film, sir. And he was, well, that's just, just great. It's great, great to hear that about them. I'm glad you like them. And then yeah. he, he left, and that was my one experience with Mace Newfeld. But I just love the uh, fact. He was delightful, lovely he, man, lovely yeah. man. And he, he worked all the way up, like, into his 90s, I think. Oh, my God, yeah. He probably dropped down dead on a set, I don't know. But, I mean, he was, he was, he was getting on. And what I was thrilled about on when, after we... You know, like I say, it was a studio show and tell. And he sat and he said to me, you know, he said, I've done a lot of studio show and tells. He said, I have to tell you, you've done, he said, it's the best studio show and tell I've ever seen. Wow. Jack Ryan, which was, I thought, wow, okay. Given some of the people that you've worked with in your career. No, he said, he said, he and Lorenzo said, yeah, it was the best show and tell we've ever. Well, well this, you know, it's, it's this, you've just brought up a question for me. So, Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit was the fifth Jack Ryan movie. So you had Hunt for Red October, you had Patriot Games, you had Clear and Present Danger, and Some of All Fears. Yeah, and then Shadow Recruit. Shadow Recruit. And it's interesting because you had three different Jack Ryans before Chris Pine. Yeah. And so you're coming into an established franchise, you know, the fifth yeah. movie in a franchise, which in a way kind of... I mean, obviously, you've had the same star in Mission Impossible, but you're joining with Mission Impossible, like with with the Jack Ryan series, you're joining a franchise late in its life. Yeah. For you, getting a job 
on something like Jack Ryan, and then I would ask you to parallel the experience with Dead Reckoning, what's it like having an established franchise to look back on? And for you as a costume designer, is it intimidating? Is it no. exciting? What, I, what's what's that like for you? I didn't, I, I didn't, I wasn't intimidated by any of it. I felt um, that the project I was doing, the film I was doing was a standalone. Right. Particularly for Jack Ryan, because it was a different actor. And I responded to the actor, you know, I mean, it's been different with Mission because Tom is Ethan Hunt and he always has been Ethan Hunt and yes. there's a very strong dialogue of what Ethan Hunt is what Ethan Hunt would wear um, and you're not going to change that and you accept the job on that basis that you know it is what it is with Ethan um, you know he's the same character um, I think with Clear and Present Danger because it was a different actor you had a bit more leeway and um, Shadow Recruit, not Clear and Present Danger. Shadow Recruit, you had a bit more leeway because he was a different actor. And there'd also been quite a gap, I think, between you know, yeah, the two. The, there had the, been. Last, the last one and ours. So um, I, we really started from scratch on that. So I wasn't intimidated by that at all. With, with Mission, no, I wasn't intimidated. I understood that, you know, you were not going to do anything groundbreaking with this character. He's a character we all love and recognize. And so that's fine. You know, you just go through the process of finding the right things and also the things that he is happy and comfortable to wear. And also, you know, with Mission, it's not just how he's looking. He's got to be able to work. Right, function. Because, because what he is doing, boy, is it physical. Yeah, well, I mean, it really I, mean I want to get into that Um you know, like I was telling you before, uh, before we started, I, I think that the for the 21st century, the team of Chris McQuarrie McHugh and Tom Cruise is one of the great pairings in Hollywood histories in terms of doing um, studio tentpole films. I mean, they had met on Valkyrie, I believe. I mean, I don't know if they met before yeah, that. But I think no, I think I think it was Valkyrie. So Chris Chris McQuarrie. Uh, it was it was Chris McQuarrie reteaming with Brian Singer, and Chris and Brian had done The Usual Suspects, and Chris won an Oscar for that screenplay, and then they teamed up on Valkyrie, and of course Tom Cruise played von Stauffenberg, and that was I know that Brian and Chris were going to make that for a lower budget. You know, when Tom came on, it became a, a bigger budget film, and and by the way, I think that Valkyrie is one of Tom Cruise's most underrated films. People forget. Oh. I only saw it, you know. I only saw it recently. I'd never seen it before. Oh. And I was on, it was showing, well, I, look, there's been, a, I'm sure he's got a conspiracy with, against me because I said to him recently, every time I turn TV on, there you are. I said, I can't get away from you. <laughs> every time, there you are. And, and since Dead Reckoning's been opening, they've been running in England all the mission films and then late at night, some of his other films. Valkyrie being one of them and I thought you know I'm going to watch this because I've never seen it fascinating story I mean I was always interested in the story but I'd never managed to see the movie and he's great he's great he's great I've got it. to stop sounding surprised okay because well, he keeps telling me why are you sounding so surprised when I well, say he's a great actor <laughs> you know I mean I'd, I'd met Chris a few times uh, through Brian I've only ever met Tom Cruise once in my life and it was interesting because it was a it was at a Laser Pacific in Hollywood I think it was a Sunday morning and I had got there with my girlfriend at the time and nobody else was there 
And I think that times Brian had told me he wanted me to come to the screening. I'm like, you know, when Brian called me up and told me to do something, I'm like doing it because I made all these documentaries for him. And Tom Cruise walked in and he's looking at me like, oh, hello. Like, who am I? You know, and he's got to be got to be careful. And I ended up, as I told you, I had this conversation with him for an hour and we had the most incredible conversation. And I just asked him one question. I said, can I ask you a question? He said, fine. I explained who I was and why I was there. I said, how do you choose? I first of all was complimentary about his career because I love the people he's worked with. I've, I'm a huge Tom Cruise fan because all of his movies, if you look at his entire career, um, especially like post Risky Business, post 1983, everything that Tom Cruise has done, he's worked with incredible collaborators in terms of screenwriters, in terms of directors, and everybody he's worked with. And so I asked him, I said, Hey, how do you pick your projects? Is it the actual quality of the script? Is it the story first? Is it your collaborators who you're going to work with, other actors and a director, or is it a combination of the two? And that was the one question I asked him, and we were off to the races. And I, I, he was so focused on me, and I was asking him about Paul Brickman, who made Risky Business, and then I was just speaking extemporaneously about his life. I mean, his, his, his business life. And because I was such a fan, I could just, and I think he was, I think he was impressed that I was just knew this stuff off the top of my head. So he knew I wasn't bullshitting him. But what was interesting about him, I wish that somebody would sit him down and talk to him about the, the, the business of making movies because he knew so much. And I was like, man, I really would wish he would sit down and talk about his career because he's so knowledgeable and really understands. He's a real, the- a real student, you know. He it really. So, so when you when you come in on this relationship, like you 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 came into this relationship with these two guys that over the course of the past 15 years, whether it was Jack Reacher, whether it was the scripts that Chris McQuarrie had rewritten for Tom, Top Gun Maverick, obviously, uh, McHugh was a producer on that, as if I know him. I mean, I know him with Chris McQuarrie. And then, of course, they had had two previous mission films, and now they're doing this monster two-parter. When you came into this relationship with these two guys that can probably, they probably think each other's sentences. They don't just finish each other's sentences. They probably already thought what each other is thinking before they've even spoken. So when you come in on a relationship like that, what was it like for you? And how did it begin? How did you find your way into this? Because, you know, they'd made, they'd made, obviously, there's six previous mission movies. There's McQuarrie and and Tom Cruise had worked together for a long time, and you hadn't worked with them before. Never, no. So So what was it like? How did it begin? Tell you how I got it. Okay. So I got a call from my agent saying, uh, how would you feel about stepping in on the mission? And I said, no, I don't. (laughs) I'm not going to. (laughs) And then she said, well, would you just take the call from the producer? I said, okay. So it was Jake Myers at the time. So Jake rang me and he said, um, I asked him a bit about it. He was telling me they were looking for somebody and that they were going to start up. They'd been shut down in Venice um, because of COVID. We didn't know what COVID was going to become by then. So they'd shut down and they wanted to restart in Rome in a couple of weeks. And I said, well... No, I'm not interested. <laughs> and he said, well, would you just go and meet Chris McQuarrie, the director? And I said, okay, would you go up to Long Cross Studios tomorrow and just go and meet him, just to talk to him? He said, I'm flying to New York, but I'll be on Zoom. 
So I said, okay. <laughs> so I, I went up, I drove up, and I bumped into the first AD who I knew, Tommy Gormley, fantastic, fantastic Tommy Gormley. And uh, he said, oh, thank you so much for coming in. And so I thought, well, okay. Uh, I went in to see McHugh, and he was talking away to me. I knew the leading lady because I'd worked with her on Woody Allen, Hayley Atwell. Mm -hmm. And um, I asked how she was and blah, 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 you know, things like this. Quite di I was quite direct. And um, and Jake was on Zoom. And I and they were explaining, you know, that they wanted to go to Rome. They'd been shut down in Venice, but they wanted to carry on in Rome in a couple of weeks. And I and I then said to McHugh, you know, do you want to tell me what it's about? Do you want, you know, there's no script. We don't have a script. Do you want to just give me some scenarios? Because he was sort of talking. So he gave me these scenarios of where they were going, what they were doing. And I remember thinking, okay, fine, I'm not touching this with a barge pole. So I remember getting out of the office thinking, I said, bye, good luck with it. You know, and I went back to, I, I went home and I rang my agent and said, no way, there's no way I'm doing this. It's, you know, they haven't got enough time. I'm not taking this on. It's too stressful, blah, blah, all those things. Anyway, then COVID really kicked in. Yeah. Okay. Now, we all know what happened. So um, I found myself up in Cumbria, which is the north of England, stranded because they called lockdown and I was stuck up there. And they kept, I kept getting calls from my agent saying, you know, how many weeks do you want prep for this? I said, I've said I'm not doing it. And, and they kept coming back to me. And I said, at least, at least 10 weeks. I said, at least. I said, I've spoken to your supervisor, you know, things are not as in place, you know, think, because, you, you know, you haven't filmed anything, really. You haven't filmed anything. So, you know, I, I, I'm not doing it. And... Um, Anyway, they came back again, ten, you know, what if you had 10 weeks, would you consider it? And I'm thinking, oh, I don't know. And then another call came and said, uh, Tom Cruise wants to meet you. And I remember saying to my agent, why? I said, no, why? Anyway, I was, I was stuck up in Cumbria with my iPhone. I didn't have a computer, my iPhone. Will you just take the call? So I said, okay. So I had my iPhone literally like you know there's four little pictures on it um and i'm looking and and McHugh was there obviously and uh jake and somebody else was on the call and uh and i was about to say well where's the movie star and i heard this voice <laughs> from this little picture <laughs> heard the very the very distinctive voice and i said oh okay he's here so and then we just started talking about um old Hollywood and I love old Hollywood and he loves old Hollywood. Yeah. So we were talking about- And he knows, you know, he knows his stuff. Oh, he knows his stuff. So we were talking about, you know, Indiscreet and Ingrid Bergman. We were talking about the yellow, the yellow um, Southwester that Debbie Reynolds wore in Singing in the Rain. You know, we were going on and on and on talking about this. And, and I said, uh, look, you know, if I did this, I would expect a lot of you because um, on Infinite, you know, Mr. Wahlberg, who I love and adore, and Mark Wahlberg, if you listen to this, you know I'm, what I'm going to say here. I got, you know, 55 minutes in his garage in L.A. to fit him for a lot of... <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and, you know, he'd, 55 minutes, I flew all the way to L.A. with 11 suitcases, and we got 55 minutes. So I said to Tom, 
I said, I expect a lot more from you than I got from Mark Wahlberg, <laughs> i.e. 55 minutes in the garage in L.A. And he Did said, he love uh, that? Oh, yeah, he laughed. He said, oh, no, no, no. He said, you know, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do the other. So um, anyway, I was still saying no. So I, I remember saying to them at the end, oh, goodbye then, good luck with it. And uh, they came back a few days later and they said they really want you to do the movie. And I thought, well, okay, realistically, when are you going to work, Jill? When are you going to work? COVID's hit. You know, you've been out of work for nine months. How long could you? Nothing's going to start up. They're offering me this job. I love the franchise. I'm a huge fan of yeah. Impossible. Have him. So I thought, okay. So I, I said yes. And then um, we were up and running. And, you know, boy, were we running. Because it was... Uh, and then and then they, were, they announced to me that you've actually got nine weeks not 10 we're going to start shooting in norway and uh, and the first time i met him face to face <laughs> he came in to look at what was on a rail and uh, he said to me look he said we're really going to concentrate on this sweater this sweater is going to save my life for this stunt and that was and the I first thing you him, shot too the motorcycle jump off yeah, the... it was and i said to him that's a lot of pressure on a sweater <laughs> too much pressure on a sweater and that was it. We still we were off. It was, yeah, crazy. Well, one of the things, I mean, I, I, I suppose for you, one of the things I really liked about Dead Reckoning is there's a lot of new characters. You know, obviously yeah. you have people like, I know Issa, Issa Morales was somebody who came in, it was going to be Nicholas Holt at first, and then it became Issa Morales. Um, yeah. And then you had people like, oh, well, Haley Atwell, who you'd work with, and you had um, Palm Clementif come on, and she was like, I loved her sort of, she looked like she was one of the Joker's hench people with the drum majorette yeah. and then yeah. um one of the uh, shay willingham and but one of my favorite things too is you they brought back kenry zerny from yeah. they brought back Kit, kittridge from uh, kittridge from number who, one yeah. who was also speaking of going back he was in uh he was in uh clear and present danger as well he was the yes, villain in clear and present danger and and like like when you bring back like i'm a huge fan of of character actors, actors that you've seen in a bunch of, like when Henry oh, yeah. Zerny is doing Henry Zerny, doing that Henry Zerny thing, it's like the greatest thing ever. Like, I, and the fact that I think when I heard his voice in the first trailer uh, for Dead Reckoning, I'm like, oh my god, you know they brought back Kitridge. So yeah, they, you you were you had a lot of new characters with which to dress. So you know Ethan Hunt yeah. is going to dress like, but Ethan Hunt was wearing a lot of nice suits. You know, he more he suits than maybe he normally wore. So when you now that you have the job, now that you have these new characters, many of which we'd never met before, where do you begin? Uh, now that it's a well-established franchise, you know, even even uh, Macquarie and, and Tom Cruise have done two of these previously. This is a new one, new mission, new characters. How do you start? What's the first thing you do besides finding um, a sweater that's going to save Tom Cruise's life? Yeah, um, we I I always start with the actor and who the actor is and what I think the actor can carry. You know, uh, character comes into it as well. Um, like Haley's character, I felt she was a very strong, empowered woman, um, and so and and also with Haley, she's got such a great face. I didn't want anything to detract from that face. 
So I wanted a very simple wardrobe for her. I wanted her to look amazing, but I wanted it to look uh, not considered. I wanted it to look easy, like she hadn't thought about. She was a girl that threw things on and looked great, whatever she did. And that's that's tr that was the vibe I was trying to get for her, that she just naturally looked great um, without too much thought. You know, there are some women who try really hard and are dressed very well and overdressed and overthought out. She was not this girl, I didn't think. Um, and that was my starting point with her. And um, everybody seemed to respond to that. So, uh, you know, that was, the, that was the way we took it. And I, and I, I, I think she, well, okay, I'm the designer, but she looked bloody good, I thought. Um, she uh, she looked fantastic. Fantastic. She does. Well, she, you know she she can you know she's she she she's got a great figure, Haley, a fantastic figure. Um, but there are certain things she can't wear, and and you know she's um you you've got to accommodate all of that. And yeah, but when she looks great, she looks great. And so we we I think we got it right there. Now, did you was, consult it, with Tom and 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 Macquarie? Oh yeah. About like in advance, did you did you come up with looks for Gabriel and looks for Grace and, yeah, and did, looks for I Paris? Did mood we did mood boards for every single character. Um, uh, yeah, lots of mood boards, and so they had a look. And Tom gets very involved with the costumes. You know, he likes to get involved. He was very involved with Haley's look. Um, so there was a yeah, there was a lot of dialogue there. Yes, and so um, but again, it's very it was very collaborative. You know, it was like well, what about trying this? What about trying that? And right at the beginning, we did have costume tests. We did, and and most of the things that we put on Haley, she you know she ended up pretty much wearing. Oh, that's great. You know, one of the scenes, one of my favorite scenes in the movie because it was unexpected. There's a briefing scene. In near the beginning of the film where there's a bunch of different governmental agents and they just they just put all of these incredible actors in a, in a single scene like you don't and I this is like catnip for me I love scenes like this they brought back Charles Parnell the actor who was in Top Gun Maverick I love that guy's face I mean I love the way he looks he's there you had Indira Pharma What's that? Yeah, fantastic. He's got he's got a fantastic face. I just and what I love I, his I voice. About that, what I loved about that scene, it was very um, to me Doctor Strange love. It was totally. very, you know, it was very very slow, considered. I thought it was a great scene. It's, I loved the scene. It, it's I mean I could have watched a movie for two hours with just them talking about what they're going to do about and, and and that's you see Henry Zierney in that scene you see I uh, carry uh, I did not I don't know how oh. I missed this I didn't know Carrie Elwes was in the movie you know yeah. I actually I actually interviewed Carrie Elwes when I was in high school when he was in a movie called Lady yes? Jane Lady Jane oh, with wow. Helena Bonham Carter you know when yeah, he's a yeah. kid um, but I've always I, so I've always loved him I've always loved Carrie Elwes and and I didn't know he's in the movie you know, and and in this scene, could they have put? And you had um, Rob Delaney, and it, could you have had yeah. a cooler scene? Now, in that particular scene, when you have all these character actors, it's going to be their only scene in the movie. What what's it like for you as a designer? Like, what were you told by Mr. Cruz or or Mr. McQuarrie about? Because you had to convey the characters, like who these people were, in costume, 
immediately. Yeah. Like you could, you didn't have time. Yeah. You're like, you get it. They're government operatives or from different parts of the service. How did you approach a scene like that in terms of the costumes? Well, we knew Rob, that the McHugh wanted Rob in uniform, Rob Delaney in uniform. Um, <clears throat> but Carrie, we wanted a bit more relaxed. It was his office they were in. Right. Uh, you know, they'd all gone to visit his office so he could be jacketless. Um, it, it, for scenes like that, it, it's it's you've got to get some different, you know, you've got to make everybody look a little bit different because there is a danger Yeah. in, in an office situation, a corporate office situation, you know, it's like a uniform, you know, with men. It you could all look the same. Right. So there was a lot of attention went into the ties, the color of the shirt. You know, we were very, I was careful that, you know, we didn't have too many blue shirts in there or too many, too many similar ties or that sort of thing. That was, that was what it was based on. And also, again, you know, what looked good on the actor. You know, Charles is great. He's tall, great shoulders, can carry most things. Um, uh, Henry is a clothes horse, you know, standard off the rack. He just puts it on. It looks great. And and lovely Mark Gatiss. Who's right. That's right. And he, oh, I love him too. Oh, yeah. He's great. Well, he and I bonded over old black and white movies because he loves old black and white English movies like I do. Like so, from the Ealing um, Studios, like uh, uh, yeah, with Alec Guinness too. and Kind Hearts yeah. and Coronets and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. We have a we have a TV channel here called Talking Pictures. I don't know. If, I don't think you get it in the states, but we have it here called Talking Pictures, and it's all those little black and white movies that people have sort of forgotten. And he, for some reason, uh, I don't know what uh, he's connected to Talking Pictures, or he's one of the faces of, you know, they like him. And so he came in one day with all this merchandising from Talking Pictures to give to me because it was, so I have a hat, a badge, you know, a calendar. And we were, the, the pair of us were sitting in between takes naming all the old British stars <laughs> on these calendars to see, you know, who, who knew who. So it was a bit of a competition, yeah. He's a delightful man. So, so yeah, I would say that um, when you have a scene like that, the trick is to have a little bit of you know try and get the differences in in the characters uh, because we didn't know their characters there was nothing written down right. we, like i say you know we, we we didn't we don't have a script and i remember being completely freaked out at the start <laughs> and um eddie hamilton the editor said to me at the right at the beginning because i said how am i going to do this there's no script what am i going to do how do i you know how, how do i know how to dress these people. And I was going, oh, you know, spiraling up. And he just said, Eddie, very calmly just said, let it go. Just let it go. He said, if you're worried about the script, you will never get anywhere. He said, just let it go and deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's why I did. And then I said to McHugh towards the end of shooting part one, I said, you know, I said, I'm going to find it really difficult to go back to a director with a script. Because, you know, when the director says to me, as per script, Jill. And I said, I'm going to find that really difficult. And he said, you already said, said, I love that I've done that to you. So. <laughs> well, another. No, we don't have uh, Another great thing, obviously, you know, coming from England, the idea of, of Bond villains and Bond hench people has been something that we've seen since 1962 and Dr. No. In this, you yeah. have you have Isai Morales' Gabriel and you have. Palm Clementif's Paris, his, yeah. his I, I I was thinking about her as his assassin, his hench person. Yes. Um, 
And there was a there was a uh, first of all, I I really liked the way you dressed him. He seemed, you know, utilitarian, but also at the same time very. The, I'll let you know the first. He had the most money spent on him. He had the biggest budget for his wardrobe. <laughs> really? Yeah, we well, spent, yeah, he had the most money, I think. Well, well apart from Tom, because we, we spent money on Tom because he had so many repeats of things. But Isai had, yeah. Yeah, Isai, he's, he's, I've been a fan of his since he was in a movie that was directed by Rick Rosenthal called Bad Boys with Sean Penn. Oh, and yeah. I, I want to say it's like, what, 82 maybe? 82, yeah, 81, yeah. and you know it's a it's youth in prison, and it's him and Sean Penn going after, and and Ali Sheedy's in it too, and so is Clancy Brown. So I love this movie. It's the first time I ever saw him as an actor, so it, I love the fact that he's in this movie as like the villain. I, I really love that. So when you're when you're dealing with villainy, you know what 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 did McCory tell you about these characters, and how did you settle upon Palm Clementif looking like a uh, some kind of Joker-esque deadly drum majorette. How did all that come about? Well, we... Um, I'm trying to think about Isai. I think I've just left to my own devices. I think I just gave a mood board of what I wanted. Isai, to me, Isai's, Isai himself is very cool, you know? And, and again, when you look at the actor and you look at the way he dressed himself, I thought, well, he, he could carry this, he could carry that. So I put a mood board together. I wanted this character to be luxurious. Right. I wanted him to be relaxed, easy, and luxurious. He had to, he had to shout money. And, um, yeah, that was my basis for, um, for Isai's character, Gabriel. And, um, and so, you know, looking, when you meet Isai, he's now a silver fox, fabulous. You know, we're looking at colors for him. I found things uh, like he wore Brunello Cuccinelli. He wore Xenia. Um, just so I was going around finding things that I thought would work on Isai that I felt were within keeping with the Gabriel character. I wanted him to be European. Right. I wanted him to have a European vibe. I was uh, basic, I was thinking of Gianni Agnelli. Um, you know, fabulous, much taller and skinnier than Isai, but still the vibe, that look, right. was what Isai was based on. Um, so yeah, we did, we just did a mood board, and McHugh liked the mood board, so I was just left to my own devices to go and get on with it. Um, the Paris character was a different kettle of fish. We thought about her being quite. I wanted her rock and roll. Okay. I wanted her rock and roll. I'm not sure McHugh was as convinced as I was about this. <laughs> That's what collaboration's all about. <laughs> yeah, but um, and and you know, Pom, who was a very very cool girl, very very cool girl, had her opinions as well, and um, so you know she had a lot of say, and we were trying lots of different looks on her, and the um, the. Uh, leather kilt and the the um, well, I call it the David Hemmings jacket from La Charge of the Light Brigade. The adamant jacket we made. <laughs> well, that, yes, um, the, that's I was saying drum majorette, but you know that's I, I, first of all, I I love that choice, 
I, I don't know why, but even the makeup that she was there's a there's a female comic book character named She who's like a S H I, uh, created by Billy Tucci, and some of those looks kind of reminded me of that, and I I I was like that look and like the way she had makeup on and and I thought that was that was a that's kind of a bold choice, you know you've never seen that before and that yeah, that that goes into the whole henchman thing how the henchmen <laughs> sometimes are more flamboyant than the people they work for for whatever yeah. and you really got that from her because obviously she was the murderous she was i, I in yeah. my mind she was the joker of the bunch you know she was yeah she, she's kind of the killing machine but i wanted a cool slightly rocky killing machine punky rocky yeah killing machine and um and i and i think um yeah it, she was quite it was quite an organic thing you know we were finding our feet with her through various fittings of what we were going to do and you know where she's running on the train when she's running along the train she did have on originally a short leather jacket and McHugh when we were on the train and we were in Norway in the middle of nowhere <laughs> McHugh said I, uh, I want her in a long coat I want her in a coat so it was like panic stations because we were literally in the middle of nowhere asking people if anybody had a, a, a coat on their person. And we, 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 did, we did find a black coat, which is what she's ending up in the movie in, um, on the train. Uh, but yeah, she, and she wears clothes incredibly well. You could put Palm in a black plastic bag and she'd make it look cool. She really would. She's a real fashion. She knows about fashion. She understands fashion. Um, she's a very cool girl. So we had fun with her. Yeah, I mean, I had a lot of fun. It definitely shows. Another thing that you got to do that I thought was really cool was uh, sort of the call it the cold open of the movies on a Russian sub. You know, and and yeah. you're you're in a Russian submarine, and you get very sort of that hunt for Red October, Crimson Tide vibe again. Going back to Jack Ryan, you know, the beginnings of the Jack yeah. Ryan franchise. The yeah. But the, even they had like they it 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 they, those were very cool uniforms. I really liked the the, the uniforms. Was uh, they didn't necessarily look to be authentic Russian uniforms. It looks like they were created, or were they authentic? Like, where did you? Because well, I really no, liked they, the look. They were, they were they were authentic. That's what the Russians wore. Oh. we made them. We had to make them. We had we bought on eBay an authentic Russian uniform. Okay. We got one, and then we had to make so marching because they looked vaguely because it's an experimental submarine they looked vaguely futuristic a little bit little zhuzh zhuzh yeah. maybe yeah well what <laughs> we um we just fitted them slightly better because the russians aren't that well fitted ah. um so we fitted them slightly better marching again a fantastic marching and ivan who were the the captain and the co-captain i never remember people's ranks right. um we you know they wore clothes very well again those two guys wore their uniforms incredibly well um so uh yeah they were fun to do but that was re that was research you know we had to get that right we're representing a russian sub right okay i mean look McHugh keeps saying it's mission you can do what you like right but within the realm it is within the realms of reality you know, well it was, it was cool i mean i i thought it looked great i mean i look really put me good on a scene. It's a great, really such a good scene, uh, and it was yeah. a, what a great way to open, open the film. Yeah. And and you know, it's interesting for those people who might not know what the term "dead reckoning" means. Uh, dead reckoning is navigating at sea using things that are not moving. 
So there yeah. is, that's where the first term originally came from. And I thought it was, I was like, what is it? Why is it called dead reckoning? And of course, there's yeah. many different meanings. But if you want to take it more of the literal meaning, it kind of starts there. And I'm like, okay, now I know, you know. <laughs> now uh, you know. But now, now you're on that ride, yeah. The, yeah, which was, I mean, which was good. That was, that, that was, um, that wasn't the original opening of the movie. Not originally. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, there's the, again. I was going to ask the the scene after. Well, it's actually the third scene where where um, Ethan goes after Rebecca Ferguson's character, which is another great. Yeah. I loved. I mean, the the desert garb that you put everybody in, both the bounty hunters, but then Ethan Hunt and Rebecca Ferguson. That was incredible. Like I I loved the way those costumes looked and especially played. Well, you know, I love I'm that whole sequence. Weapon. It is. It's a good sequence. I, I'm a huge fan of westerns. And so I was begging <laughs> to let me put him in a duster coat. I was desperate to put him in a duster coat. So uh, I got my way. And um, It's awesome. And, and she also had one. I mean, he, he didn't have his on for very long. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was great on the horse. And he had the most beautiful horse called Zeus. God, this horse was unbelievably beautiful. Um, and we, you know, they were shipped out from Abu Dhabi. These horses, to, from Dubai to Abu Dhabi, where we shot in the desert, they were fabulous, fabulous horses. It was amazing time doing that, amazing. But all that stuff, all the assassins were built from scratch. What I did, we we went to pull um, various samples. We had a look, what I thought. I wanted something that was, well, McHugh wanted something that was a, a non-recognizable. Um, bunch of people um, so so we were just trying to find interesting shapes um, uh, and 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 there was a lot of talk about uh, one of the assassins who Rebecca Ilse's character becomes she dresses up like a you know we had a cotton mask against right. the sandstorm he loved the way that the that the nose and the mouth were shaped in this in this mask uh, and you see it you get quite a close-up of this he loved all that. So, and I wanted it all one uniform color. I wanted them just to blend, like like a mini army, really, but with differences. You know? No, it was great. And there's kind of a leader in that group who's got the different face, so you can identify him more the white and kind of the the and yeah. which made it so okay. You they weren't just nondescript. They had okay. I know this guy. This guy's like the leader. So you you that was that was really well. That was really well done. I mean, another thing yeah. I, I had to ask, and, and from a production standpoint, I was thinking, so when you're in the airport, was that airport, was everybody there? With, were they all extras? Yeah, like, it was, it hadn't, it's the brand new airport in Abu Dhabi, but it wasn't open to the public. They were still building it. We were on a building site. Right. Okay. So everybody, every, yeah, it was. It's an amazing, amazing building, amazing building. Um, but we were, you know, it was, it was still a building site. We were, you know, going various areas and they were still putting it up. But no, it was, um, they were all our, us. It was all us. I mean, I was looking at that because there's so many. It was great because it looked like it was, it was so packed with people. You guys did such a great job. Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, so in a scene like this for people who, you know, might not know a lot about when you have to get all those extras, they all have to be dressed. They all have to be because it's an international hub yeah so so yeah, yeah. like what is a day like that for you when you've got literally i would imagine hundreds of people you know that are in a scene it's like a very that. long day <laughs> a very long day it starts very very early in the morning 
but what what had happened? You know, we'd all been filming in the desert uh, before we got to the airport, and um, well, <laughs> McHugh had decided that he wanted a load of agents in this airport, special agents, and they weren't cast. And so we'd gone to Abu Dhabi, we'd taken shed loads of stuff, it had all been shipped over, and he decided he wanted 14 agents. <laughs> and he wanted them by Wednesday, and it was now Sunday. So uh, I remember sending Charlotte, my assistant, we were in the desert, and I remember sending, saying to Charlotte, my assistant, who's been, she's a fantastic assistant, she's been with me 25 years, I said, you're gonna have to go back to Abu Dhabi, you're gonna have to get you know, the crowd team and you, you're going to have to go shopping. You're going to have to start at least. And then I'll come back tomorrow when I, because I had to wait and see Tom on about with something uh, on, on camera. And, uh, and we're going to have to just shop. And thank God the shops weren't, you know, closing with COVID. It was all open in Abu Dhabi because we were right in the heat, in the middle of COVID at right. this point. And uh, so it was just frantic shopping for two days for 14 people. And what people probably don't understand, you know, when you do a fitting, um, you've got to have three times as much right. in the fitting <laughs> sure. to, get, to get one outfit. So I think we just bought the whole of Abu Dhabi and it was shipped into our hotel where we were based from. And we were frantically fitting. We had 14 actors who'd been coming in from all over the world to fit. Wow. It's crazy. Now, you, so this sort of begs the question, because there's so much action involved, how many multiples did you have to make of your principal's costumes? Like like when Ethan Hunt has, because he's in the same outfit from the time he's on the motorcycle to when he makes that jump to when he gets on the train, and which is like probably, what is that, 45 minutes or even like, it's a long extended sequence in the film. How many multiples for Ethan Hunt did you have to make? Am I giving away trade secrets here? We had a lot. We had a lot. Uh, and also, you know, with Tom particularly, with any stunt, you know, you have to accommodate what is going on with the stunt, i.e. if somebody has to wear a harness. Right. Or knee pads or arm pads, elbow pads or a chest rig, whatever. Sometimes, you know, depending on the stunt. Uh, I mean, he had very, very little on for doing that stunt in jumping off the cliff very little he had knee pads on and that was it that was it and then he had his parachute um but we we um so w with that costume we had uh lots of different variations different sizes um like different leg widths different leg lengths because sometimes you see him standing up and sometimes you see him on the bike so we had bike trousers, pants, and wow. we had up pants. Uh, we had various sizes of sweater. Um, yeah, a lot. I, I've got a great, it's funny, I've got a great picture because all that, those pants were made, those pants were made for him and we had to dye the, the, the color of the fabric because we couldn't get this fabric in the color we wanted. Right. So I've got a, I've got, I just found it the other day. I've got a great picture of Charlotte and myself, and we've got rolls of this blue fabric, but they all came out a different color blue from the dye batch. And we're trying to decide which one, 
which color and and then we had to keep sending them back to the dyers with samples with every single dye every single roll of fabric that we were they were we were sending them all to a factory to be built because they're all the same pant it's just you know we had to get different sizes and uh, yeah every single goddamn roll was a slightly different color so that was a <laughs> oh. and remember we're doing this we have nine weeks we have nine weeks from the time i met him face to face and he said the classic this sweat is going to save my life to when we were on that ramp in norway wow okay now i have to ask you this too curiously you know i had heard that when this movie was screened for the first time i guess for executives it was like three and a half hours long you know and they can't the first cut of the movie was much longer they obviously you can't from for commercial reasons you can't put a movie that long in theaters a movie like this i would i heard we were rivaling gone with the wind yeah i mean i i what what was amazing to me when i was sitting in the theater and i was the second time this movie feels like it's less than two hours like it's it's one of the movies where i don't you don't feel the time at all there's been very few movies in my life that i've watched a movie where it tricks you because it's so it just whips so you have no idea how long it is and when it was over the when i saw it yesterday i was like god it, 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 did they cut parts out of this movie since i saw it because it went by so fast but let me ask you this were there characters in this movie that have been removed were there scenes in this no. movie well, I think scenes, yeah. Yeah, there, was, there had to have been a lot. I'm sure there was a lot of scenes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, characters, no. Everybody made it into the movie. I'm trying to think of anybody that was dropped. Probably the only people that were dropped, but they didn't really have lines per se, were the agents that we'd run around like idiots to get ready. <laughs> right. <laughs> 14 agents. Uh, who I don't think got a lot of camera time. Well, that was something I didn't... We talked about the agents, but I didn't ask about uh, Greg Davis or, or Shay Wingham because uh, the, the, they obviously represented a different faction, the American government, you know, the, trying to bring them in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I, I like the way they were dressed, utilitarian, but they they represented a different, another faction. They, I guess the yeah. agent, because they were part of the agent, that faction... Did they, when, I mean, obviously they couldn't overshadow anyone and I liked the way they were dressed, but was there, was that part of the, was that part of the agent team or did, because they were, the two of them were front and center, did you give them something a little bit extra to make them stand out more? Yeah. I mean, they, we, we'd fitted them long. I mean, the other agent team, you know, was, was very last minute. So, um, but we'd fitted them before we'd got out to Abu Dhabi, the, the airport team where they figure. Um, they had to look real. They had to look like yeah. work. They had to look believable. Shay had to look like, you know, he would throw that jacket on and a shirt. That was just his style. Um, Tarzan, Greg, was a younger version. Sure. A little bit more, a little bit more youthful in his style. Uh, but I, I just wanted them to be believable. You know, they couldn't be so cool that they wouldn't i wanted you to feel that they they got their hands dirty right and i think that was i like that i like the way they're dressed i like i like those characters i mean that was that was a lot of fun and yeah they were were fabulous fabulous boys i love them yeah they were great now in rome suddenly you 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 have all kinds of local cops you've got the the brome police the italian police 
Now, were those costumes that you were making? Could you go to the Italian? No, we no, we uh, we we rented. There's costume Italian costume houses that have that, so we were renting all of that. Yeah, I mean they've got a. Yeah, I was gonna say a long. They have a long history of Italian. I love Italian crime thrillers, and I own a lot of them. And I figured you, but that they still there was a lot of them, you know. And and again, a lot of a lot of them, and a lot of judicial. That you know, the judge. There was a, there was a. Do we? Maybe that scene was cut. We did have a judge. I think. Well, no, they go in. Yeah, no, that there's that scene's there, and there's the whole thing in the courts and all that. Yeah. Again, those those so, great so all- great casting, by the way. All those actors oh, in Italy, yeah. were great casting. Yeah. I mean, everybody looked fantastic. fantastic. Um, and you great- know, that was really. You know, we by then we were really filming in the height of COVID, and what was to me, and I'll always have this memory. It was a real privilege to be able to go to Venice. I don't know if you've been to Venice before. I have. But not. you know when you. Well, well neither had Ethan Hunt to... nor nor Grace had no, been to Venice no. before, so I feel like when, I'm not. When you go to Venice, no, you're not alone. But I'm when not you alone. Go to Venice, if you go to Venice, it's heaving. It's always heaving with people. It's so busy. And you know, some Mark Square. It's bouncing. It's full of people and pigeons, and um, <laughs> and uh, we went and it was deserted. And it was magical. Wow. Yeah, because, I mean... It was utterly, utterly magical. And it was a real... We had a ball in Venice. It was utterly magical. And uh, it was, a, for me, a real privilege to see St. Mark's Square deserted. <laughs> deserted during the day, you know? And, and at night as well, because St. Mark's Square is bouncing at night. But it was just fantastic. There was a, there was a point in Venice where the uh, Italian government called a curfew. So we had to carry papers. And we were doing a few night shoots, so we had to carry papers on us, otherwise we'd be arrested or prosecuted. So I felt like I was in a Second World War escape movie, like cold it from because uh, you had to, you had to carry your papers. And there were people marshalling the streets, you know, yeah. Italian cops marshalling the streets to check. And we, we were constantly, I was constantly running back to the hotel to get something, you know, from from the from the Ducali uh, Palace where we filmed that big party scene, and we our base was, you know, it's very spooky Venice at night. I wasn't always happy running back to get something in the spooky, you know, don't look now type. I was expecting a little red. Nice reference for those of you people. Uh, Don't Look Now, directed by Nicholas Rogue, Julie Christie, Donald Sutherland. It's one of the great ghost stories you'll ever see. You'll never look at Venice. That little person in a red coat with a knife. So I did keep thinking when I was running back in these deserted streets with my papers (laughs) ready to show the cops that I was legit. That, you know, this little person with a red knife, with a red coat and a knife would come out and get me. It was, you know, my stupid imagination. But anyway, but yeah. I just like that you think it's nice to know that you know that film. That's that's the impressive part, you know. (laughs) Yeah, big Nick Rogue fan, yeah. Me too. Um, I'm yeah. a huge Nick no, Rogue it fan. Was, uh, it was um, it was a real fantastic time, and and I remember uh, they closed Venice Airport, and I, I had to get back to London. We had more fittings to do, and uh, Charlotte and I were. They drove us from Venice to Rome, the pair of us, and we were in a people carrier, and there was a driver, and we were driving down from Venice to Rome, and every, there was like going through Checkpoint Charlie. We were uh, stopped 
every few miles by a police checkpoint. And we had to open the door, slide. I remember this door sliding and the papers, they asked for your papers. And the driver kept saying, Mission Impossible. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. They just waved us on through. They just waved us on through. Um, now experience fantastic i i mean it, you know it's 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 it sounds like it was so much fun it looks like it's so much fun you know i remember seeing clips of this they, they have this thing called CinemaCon where they show in vegas where they have all the dis- exhibitors that show movies people that own movie theaters oh, okay. independent theater owners and they showed clips from this last year uh tom cruise has made sure that the people at CinemaCon they they'll he'll shoot an intro on a plane or some crazy thing and hello CinemaCon and uh seeing clips from this this film I mean it was it was it was insane and I know that obviously there was a lot made in the press of of the covid what was going on during covid and how Tom Cruise was very you know adamant about cuz it's his movie he's the producer he's beholden to every dollar from the studio and he's being responsible it had to have been I mean, this was this was sort of the forefront of the business during COVID. This was the movie that was happening during COVID, and um, it's it. I, I think that in a way, it'd be interesting to go back and read an account. Like, I'd love to read a book on the making of this movie, and 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 see how that worked. Because being international while COVID broke out and having to deal with all the different things, and being in Abu Dhabi and being in Norway and being in in Italy, it would be fascinating to read an account of all that, like the behind the scenes and what everybody oh, yeah. had mean, to deal you know, with. We were we were struck down several times. Crew members were isolated. They had to stay in their hotel rooms. You know, we it was stringent. I mean, I remember doing fittings in Italy. We were in Rome, and we were in a basement, and I looked like I'd stepped out of um, some nuclear sci-fi movie because I had <laughs> goggles on. I had my hood up, a Soko suit on. I belted mine because I thought, I, you know, I'm going to at least show I've got a waist. And, um, you know, all your ID badges on, your gloves. Yeah. That's how you had to fit people. And, you know, we were tested. We were PCR'd three times a week. We were told that you had to wear your mask if you were anywhere near. We were all in bubbles. We were all in zones. Yeah, yeah. So um, you weren't allowed. We all had hotels in different zones. Mm. So you weren't meant to. You went to cross-pollinate right. with another zone. I mean, it didn't always work out that way, but um, that that was, you know, it was stringent, the, the, the rules on, and everything. You know, you were always hand sanitizing. Uh, you were told you couldn't talk to somebody longer than 15 minutes in their space. Sure. You then had to leave the space. You had to have your mask on. It was really difficult to work. You had to have a, a mask and you had... Um, goggles or you had a screen you know those masks were horrendous you know hated it but you had to do it now were you when you were when you were making this movie you knew obviously you already knew that you were going to go into part two i would imagine or did you have to wait no i didn't i didn't didn't know i didn't know i thought i just signed on for nine months and i remember it's distinctly standing in um a, the, when we were doing the Rome courthouse, that sequence where Haley's been marched right. between the two, you know, into the court, and Tom and I are standing there, and he said, "Oh, he said, I've just got to tell you, you know, everybody looks fantastic, you know, blah 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 blah." And I was just saying to him, 
you know, oh, well, you know, when are you going to start part two? You know, when are you going to start doing the second one? How long are you giving yourself between? And he just said to me, not when I start, JT, when we start. <laughs> and I said, him, I said to him, look, I said, we've got a long way to go on this movie. I said, I would reserve your judgment until we get to the end of this to see what sort of a screw up I might have made. I said, because I'm not immune. I said, before you suggest that I'm going on to part two. And that was it. It was never up for discussion. That was it. I was just drifted onto part two. Now, how, what was the, how much time between the, because, you know, after shooting, obviously going to editorial, they had a release date they had to make. So what was the, when part one ended, when it, the physical production wrapped and you, you're, you were done, you were wrapped out, how long until you started working on part two took place? We were never wrapped out. Really? Wow. <laughs> well, did you get a script? <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. So wait a minute. There was never doubt. You just went, it was like literally filming one right after the other. Yeah. So that's, fa I mean, I've often thought, and I've never quite understood on these movies, after Lord of the Rings was made, after what Peter Jackson did doing all three movies, and it wasn't as easy as making them all at one time because they had to go back and do pickups and, and stuff like that. I worked on, on documentaries on the making of the first Lord of the Rings movies. So um, we did 10-hour documentaries for each each of the three films. So I've always thought, if you're going to make, if you know you're going to make a sequel, why not do it and film concurrently? Because you can amortize costs if you're having the same sets or do all these kinds of things. But obviously you're going to want to have new characters and new costumes and new locations. But I, I thought, I thought... Um, I would get some downtime, but I didn't. Some of my crew got downtime. Right. Uh, we didn't get downtime. And also, you know, how they work, and I don't know if this is common knowledge or not. I, I've heard them talk about it. You know, if if they don't like something, we reshoot it as we go. Right, yeah, yeah. We don't, we don't, we don't wait right, until they right. get a final a cut. And then, you know, if, they don't, if they're not happy with something, we'll come back to it a couple of weeks later. And reshoot it. Well, I can imagine and, and that's part of the the part of the benefits of having someone like Chris McQuarrie and Tom Cruise working together, in that you basically have, I mean, in terms of a formidable front, you have your writer, director, producer, with your star producer, and both of them, they don't strike me as people that are are like going to do Michael Cimino on Heaven's Gate and be like, I want everything I want. They're probably acutely yeah. aware of the business aspects of producing. And oh, how to yeah. do things effectively. I would imagine that's part of their part of their their. Uh, well, you know that their, their, their main rebus I feel with them is you know how can we entertain the audience? How can we get better at entertaining the audience? We want to get better and better and better, and they're on a constant, constant. Um, uh, I can't speak anymore. A constant, um, uh, you know adventure of trying to find what is better what how they can entertain the cinema audience that's what they're about yeah well and and and, you know, and they can they control that what, it's oh, I mean, yeah they do i think that's they their do. strength and i think that's and something what's that, great, yeah what's great when you see when you're with them together you know they spark off each other right and ideas are coming out all the time and McHugh has said himself you know he finds 
a script restricting because because you know it doesn't allow you to um you know you get you got bogged down with what's on the page as opposed to what's in front of you and hey what about we try this right and 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 what's fascinating to be part of that with them and watch them work you know it's constant you know when McHugh was in um with some of tom's fittings in the beginning it was a constant constant backwards and forwards of ideas when we're still trying to fit a costume and i never knew what i was fitting for i had no clue i was fitting to a scenario you know all right wait, he's going in the desert okay what are you doing in the desert well we don't know yet so so and then and then when we're doing the fitting hey you could do this what about we do this so it's it's a constant constant stream of ideas pouring out of them uh, of what they could do to make a better film a more exciting they're they're on a mission literally on a mission to produce a more exciting to better what they did the last time well on that and it's note fascinating to be around. it's fascinating to be around i can only imagine how creatively energizing that has to be i mean well yeah it it, it is because you're not bound by any rules however you know it's hairy right because yes no you know, doubt. And by the way, you know, I mean, I'll give you an example. Oh, I can't. It's to do with eight. I can't give you that. But, you know, it, they, they... um. Well, you could they, if you wanted to. <laughs> I can't. I'll, they'll, I'll get told off. I'll get my knuckles wrapped. Right. Um, no, they, they, they constantly, you know, you would be given a challenge like, you know, 14 agents. We want them all on Wednesday. So you are running around sometimes, you know, frantically in a panic. How are we going to get this done? Uh, because they've just thought about it. So right. it's you're, you're on you. You know you can't rest on your laurels. You are constantly, which is good. You know it's kind of good. It, it, it's nerve wracking sometimes, and it's nerve wracking because you say, well, what's this character doing? Where's it come? Where's he come from? What what's his story? What what's he doing? We don't know. Okay, I've got a question. I've got a question, and 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 then I'll well, we can wrap this up because I've kept you here for an hour and a half. This has been fascinating. Oh, I don't, and I can talk. It's fine. The I, um, no time. So, so we have this AI, the entity. How do I put this? How do I ask this question? Is that was there ever a time when you were working on this movie, or perhaps on part eight, when you as the costume designer, aside from what Gabriel is wearing, did you ever have to anthropomorphize the entity? Meaning, if the entity was a human, you never had to do that. So, no. Okay, I was just curious if the like if you had a, a character because I was here's the thing when I was watching the movie, I I saw Gabriel as like this acolyte of this AI system, like because they say in the film that. The AI, the AI, the entity needs human agents to, to give, be its hands yeah. and eyes. And so I was yeah. thinking that so in 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 terms of what and this is in my own mind when I'm as an audience member, I'm watching the movie and I was looking very closely at what Gabriel was wearing, because obviously they yeah. established in the past that he he had killed somebody dear to Ethan Hunt. And this was pre mission yeah. one. And and then, but now it was almost like I looked at, and this is in my own mind again. I looked at the end that Gabriel as almost like a religious zealot. 
you know, oh, right. uh, you know that that he had become this. He was a bad dude, you know, and a bad a bad actor, as they call them, a, maybe a stateless bad actor, mercenary for hire, whatever the hell he was in the past. But now, and I saw it because of the cult, like the colors he was wearing. You know, he wasn't just wearing black. You know, you didn't have him in black. He was in other suits, and like in the, like you said, he was all. He almost looked slightly angelic in the airport, maybe. And then he was yeah. wearing, and so I was thinking to myself, in my own mind, you know, is he now, is he, a, is he the high priest? Is the, is he the entity's high priest? And in my mind, okay, well. so <laughs> I guess, so what I'm asking is, that's what I kind of mean. Is it, does, is he that way? Is he, can I think of Gabriel? Cause his name is Gabriel. You know, Ghost yeah. in the Machine, Duet Ex Machina. You know, I'm thinking along these lines. And just from a costume perspective, that's I kind of got that vibe with what you were doing. Now, maybe that wasn't intentional, but the way that the story no, was, was... Yeah, okay. Because the way the story was unfolding, wasn't. I was reading all of this meaning into that. You know, all, all we knew about when we were prepping this was that there was a key. And I remember asking McHugh in a fitting, what, what does the key do? He said, "I don't what know." Is it? What is... He said, "I don't. I don't know yet." Well, I, so, I mean, because so, here's the thing: so we, we, didn't, we didn't know. But they call it the key. Is I mean, it's not like the imagery wasn't there. It's a cruciform key. It's a cross, you know. And you've got a guy, Gabriel, the angel, whatever. So there's all yeah. this religion, religious iconography, and ghost yeah. in the machine, God in the machine. You know, uh, uh, Deus ex machina, and 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 yeah. I, 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 so it was all there. I was just curious if you had brought yeah. intentionally brought that. No. And in part no, eight, in I, I wasn't aware that Gabriel was really. A, it, it it became more obvious, but we'd fitted him by then. Right. So because it, it was it, the movie's iterative, so. You know, yeah, I'm looking yeah. for things that I'm putting my film school student hat back on. But I think what's what's great about this, you can read lots of things as you have yeah. into this. Now, they, they've afforded you the, the opportunity to read into what you want to make. Of this. Well, even the light on the key, there's the red and white lights, heaven and hell on that cruciform it's two parts yeah. you know and i'm i'm I'm, yeah. I, I'm looking at all this going okay yeah uh, and and so and even the 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 well they keep cutting to if there's a physicality to the to the entity it's in that submarine because we see it you know the camera yeah. shots that looked to me like hell brain or whatever you want to call it it, it looked yeah. like a brain or a nuclear bomb yeah. or something so it was and i'm like this is all intentional right <laughs> it reminded me a bit of the beginning of doctor who totally i, I yes yeah. and all that well listen before i let you go and this has been i can't Jill. this has been such a fun conversation it's yeah. um lovely, lovely to you thank you for inviting me oh it's fantastic but i have to ask you there's a lot of people who what advice can you give the new generation coming up? I mean, now that we've got social media and people can share their work on Instagram, and I know that a lot of costume designers are on Instagram, what is some advice you can impart to people that, you know, might decide to pursue this as a profession? Um, I, I would say um, that 
you've got to have a passion for it because it's a hard industry. It's a tough industry and you've really got to want it. You really have. And I think you've got to enjoy it. You've got to, you've, and I think, I think you've got to have perseverance. And mm. I, I was saying, somebody else interviewed me a little while ago and I said, you know, the thing which I didn't realize about myself and it's only as I'm the age I am now that I've realized you just keep going. You just, and you get knocked back. It's, yep. it's the old saying, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you get knocked back, it's how many times you get back up again. And, you know, I've been starving. I've not had work for some times, a long time, but you just have to keep persevering and you have to have a belief in yourself. And that's very difficult when you're out of work and nobody wants to know you and you can't get arrested. It's very difficult. But if you want it badly enough, um, you just have to keep going, head down, keep going. And I would say that to any young person, it doesn't come that, for some, look, like anything, for some people it comes easily, for some people it doesn't. But I think if you really want it badly enough and you have a passion for it, you will get there by hook or by crook. And I think that's what I would say to younger people, just keep going. Doesn't matter how many knockbacks you get. I, th I think that's good advice, you know, following, following your passion and be passionate about it. Um, which I think is, you know, I think that's anybody who's pursuing a career in the entertainment business has to have that because, man, it's a rough, it's a rough slog sometimes. It, it is a rough slog sometimes. And I think, you know, you get lots of kickbacks, lots of put downs, loads of rejections. You know, you, you get to a point where you think, why didn't I get that job? What have I done wrong? What's wrong with me? All of those things you go through, all those emotions, and it's across the board. I mean, I, I know very, I know some people who've had it really easy and gone, you know, just go from strength to strength and that's great. But the majority of us, you know, it, it's, it's a tough, it can be a tough slog. So that's what I would say to people, you know, A, really make sure you have a passion for this. If you're just coming into this thinking it's going to be a glamorous world and that you're going to make lots of money, you're in the wrong business. Uh, you know, you, you really have to love it. You have to love it. I mean, I really love actors. I enjoy actors. I enjoy all their foibles. I enjoy their insecurities, their neuroses, I, all of these things, you know, that make up, you know, they're, they're fun, they're interesting. I, I love actors. I enjoy being in the company of actors. And I think that's important, particularly if I'm dressing them, you know, they've got, I've got, there's got to be some kind of, you know, some kind of connection. Absolutely. Can do you have a social media presence? Can people follow you on Instagram or find you? Yeah, Jill Taylor Costume Design. Really imaginative. Jill Taylor Costume Design. That's me. At Jill Taylor Costume Design, isn't it? I'm just, as I'm saying to that to you, I'm just saying, <laughs> just checking. I am actually Jill Taylor Costume Design. Yeah, I am. There you go. On Instagram, yeah, Jill, Jill Taylor Costume Jill Design. Jill Taylor Costume Design. That's me. Yeah. I'm not very good at it. I'll tell you now. I mean, like I've done 90, I've managed 95 posts. <laughs> but yeah, it's. <laughs> hey, that's it's, better than some. Yeah, I'm not very good at it because I think, why would anybody be interested in me? But I'm tr I'm trying to get better. I well, am going to post some pictures on there of drawings. Because you're the costume designer of a three hundred million dollar movie that's number one at the box office. I know. I can't quite believe that, but it, yeah, it's very exciting. It is. It very is. Exciting. It is exciting. No, and the movie is exciting. Who um, knew when I was a kid watching Mission Impossible on TV? with Barbara Bain and uh, Martin Landau and Peter Graves, that I would end up doing 
And Leonard Nimoy, who later Leonard came on. Leonard Nimoy, yes. Leonard Nimoy, yes. Um, you know, it's funny. I just recently picked up the box set of Mission Impossible on Blu-ray. You know, in anticipation. It. This is. I, I have a DVD. I have a DVD of them. I have to. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna cop to this. I'll cop to this to show you. So, because um, I'm susceptible to this. So, the Paramount. Uh, as I get these over here, uh, I wasn't gonna show you this, but since you did. Paramount re-released the Mission Impossible movies in 4K steelbooks. Wow! So Look I had to I had to get all six. Quite <laughs> right, right. Look at that. That's amazing. So and they're great. I mean, the, the covers are are fantastic. Oh, yeah, so uh, I got, I had to get wow. them all. And the thing was, this is the crazy part. I already owned all these movies, but because they came out in these collectible steelbooks. And I had to get them all to be uniform. And they look cool, though. They look cool. Yeah, I like oh, uniform. They're, they're awesome. Like now, now watch, cool. watch Paramount put the put Dead Reckoning Part One and Two in different packaging, so the yeah, anal retentive. Be really upsetting. Yeah, it will be upset. They'll do it though. The, the, they uh, hopefully. By the way, if anyone on the Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning production team sees this, could somebody make sure that you make the other the two movies? Is the same. That's all I I'm asking. I'm just looking as I'm. Hang on, as I'm talking to you. Is it here? Yeah, sorry, I've left my... Look, so this is the box set. Oh, the, of, of the, the TV show. Look at that. Hang on, yeah. let me go full frame on that with you. Yeah, look at that. Yeah. And there's Barbara Bain and Martin Landau. <laughs> look at that. My mom bought me these. Yeah. Nice. I loved it. Loved it. It's great. You know who else loved it? Tom Cruise and Chris McQuarrie. <laughs> Yeah, they did. Um, they did. And, and, you know, it's it's great. Well, listen, Jill, this has been so much fun. And thank, uh, thank you. you for coming on. So, Jill Taylor, thank you for being such a tremendous guest here on the Designing Hollywood podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Fantastic. And thanks very much to our sponsor for this episode of the Designing Hollywood Show, the Costume Rentals Corporation. The variety of costumes at Costumes Rentals Corporation is expansive. CRC is recognized worldwide as the premier supplier of military and police costumes and uniform rentals. Costumes Rentals Corporation takes pride in its commitment to each customer, helping to produce the type of exceptional look needed for a successful production. A special thank you to founder and executive producer Martika Barra, co-founder, costume designer, the legendary Marilyn Vance, and of course, John Campia from The John Campia Show. Thank you to all of our viewers for tuning in, and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, tune in to the audio version wherever you listen to podcasts. I am, of course, your host, Robert Meyer Burnett, and you can find me on Instagram at rmburnett, or find me on Twitter at burnettrm, or on YouTube at postgeeksingularity. Thanks very much. Like, subscribe, and give us your comments. What would you like to see on the channel? Right down below. Thanks very much for watching, and we'll see you on the next episode of Designing Hollywood.